are all set up to seek security and connection. And uh, that's a great way, that's probably the primary way in our lives how we feel secure is by connecting with others, not on a superficial way, but on a deep emotional way, a way that transcends language, the entire uh, right hemisphere of your brain, the emotional part of your brain is set up specifically to connect with others well before you acquire language or memory that's lasting in a narrative form or any sense of identity you have an emotional mind that's signaling to the people around you, your caretakers, for a sense of security, a feeling of being accepted, a feeling of being important, uh, being secure, being monitored. You look for a sense that your emotions are understood. And it's one of the most important ways that we... Uh, for the entire life that we're given, it's one of the primary ways how we bond and how we achieve any sense of, um, of uh, purpose, security, meaning, deep meaning in our life is the way we uh, bond with others. And it's done through glances, through body language, through through the tones of voice, through being there, through touch, through all the things that are not available through language the right hemisphere uses, and it's going on all the time beneath our words to each other. Now, our need for connection, for support, security, especially when we're young and vulnerable, and we know that we can't take care of ourselves, our um, need for acceptance is extreme. And if we are lucky, we grow up in environments where our um, not early emotions that we express through our cries, our actions, our behaviors, our body language, our, the way we behave, if we're lucky, we have caretakers that will acknowledge, tolerate, and continually restore a sense of feeling uh, wanted, feeling accepted, feeling acknowledged. Mothers at first with children do that by mirroring glances. A child, if it's frightened, the mother mirrors back the fear for a moment and then smiles to reassure the child that everything's all right. If the child is frustrated, the mother mirrors that. And this mirroring process is so important to our um, not only to our uh, core feelings of security, but a, but a lot of studies show that our entire um, future behaviors in, in relation with others is determined by really early uh, events. And we are desperate to secure these feelings of being accepted by others to the degree that um, <clears throat> children will, in the words of D.W. Winnicott, the great child psychologist, they will abandon 
virtually any authentic natural behavior if the caretakers and the people around it don't respond positively. If we're shamed, blamed, if our caretakers lose interest in us when we exhibit certain behaviors, we will disavow those behaviors. And if certain behaviors we watch and observe, our parents, our caretakers, the kids around us when we're young, if we see certain behaviors being rewarded with approval, acknowledgement, we will perform those behaviors even though they're completely inauthentic. They're not natural. So human beings have a strong tendency to be uh, to self-abandon, to be inauthentic until we, the uh, performance falls flat. We, we're so needing uh, the... Uh, allowance, the twinship, the membership of, of other people. That's how, as human beings, we've achieved our status as the dominant species on the planet. As I said yesterday, it's not from, we don't run fast, we don't climb trees, we don't fight well, but boy, do we interact well, and boy, can we team up. And that's how we know the entire, through evolution, We've developed an entire lobe of the brain specifically set up to connect with others. So, um, as the existentialist noted, um, to be authentic, we have to work against this, this mindless seeking of approval at all costs, no matter how inauthentic, no matter how foreign the behaviors are to us. God knows, when I was uh, a kid in the 70s, you weren't allowed to have any uh, any behavior, interests, that didn't fit into gender expectations was pummeled out of you by social ostracism, rejection. If you, I was a kid, I used to like Black music, I hated heavy metal, <laughs> and uh, and the taste of and they would you know the abuse. If you liked anything that wasn't stereotypically heterosexual, uh, if you went anywhere uh, outside of what was normative at the time, that was completely uh, shunned. And so there's so much damage done, and for a while uh, in life we can be very tempted to perform, to meet the expectations of the people around us, to get love, to get acceptance. And it's not, not only is it not authentic in that it's not spontaneous to us, it's not something that we would do naturally, but also it's a behavior we can't sustain without an enormous amount of uh, stress. And the more we perform to get love, uh, the more hollow the approval we do get is. If we, for example, go out on a date and we feel the need to be funny, the need to be always upbeat and charming and enthusiastic, and we're not feeling that way. We're feeling sad, lonely, uh, uh, anxious. Then the temptation to try to mold ourselves into what we think is the correct way to behave on a date, suppose it works. 
but still in the back of our mind we know that this person is with us for a facade. It's not really the way we feel. We're putting on a show to get them to like us. And people can be in relationships for years putting on a show, desperate because we believe that our authentic nature is unlovable. And sometimes uh, it's a little bit like that story about the elephants that they train to stay in captivity in circuses when they're young. They put a pole into the ground that attaches to, the chain attaches to one of the elephant, the baby elephant's legs. And so when it's young, it can't pull out the pole from the ground. But as the elephant, of course, ages and becomes a significantly sized animal, it could very easily pull the pole out from the ground, but it doesn't because it believes that it can't. And so from young life, we often decide that certain behaviors, certain urges, certain impulses, certain uh, traits, certain characteristics are unlovable. We've just, from the people we grew up with, the caretakers or the, the people who were around, the, the school kids, the institutions we came into contact with, we were somehow abandoned enough, rejected enough in certain arenas that we begin to conceal these emotions. And sometimes just experiencing certain emotional states or certain impulses can be really, really dysphoric. We can feel ashamed of our creative elements. We can feel ashamed of our sadness, our fear, our loneliness, our frustrations, our confusions, all of the human emotions we have, some of them we consign to the unlovable, and we keep them in arm's distance. And other, other behaviors that are completely foreign to us, we might pick up and enact to be loved. So, to be authentic in life is to find roles that are not just there to get uh, approval. The, the, what the Buddha called the eight worldly wins, the approval, fame, sensual pleasures, uh, monetary gain. <coughs> if in life we wind up being a lawyer, but, in, but deep down inside we have no interest in the law, it's just that's what gets us a sense of security, a sense of acknowledgement, a sense of being okay from others, then it doesn't matter how much money we make, how far we get in the law, how uh, high our careers ascend, it will feel hollow at the end. We'll be standing there with a bunch of trophies that are meaningless because they were all chased down out of an inauthentic uh, quest to perform to get love, especially the love we might not have gotten when we were young and vulnerable, when any abandonment or rejection by our parents leaves such lasting scars. There's a lot of studies now about just um, how, uh, how vulnerable we are in, in childhood to um, uh, experience shapes the right hemisphere. And this is why sometimes people go again and again and again back to uh, horrific, damaging relationships 
trying to seek love from people who are incapable of giving it due to early childhood experience. So, um, authentic life means finding real, deep joy that comes from within. And then going out and finding people who will support us. That's the process. It's not about finding lovable people who will, you know, somehow direct us into what we should do. The answer to what is our purpose, our meaning uh, in life has to be found by us and it has to resonate deeply along those behaviors that that create what neuroscientists call a state of flow, where the things that, when we do it, we lose a sense of time, we lose our sense of identity, we become deeply enthralled and absolutely enraptured by a behavior and activity. And nobody can tell you what that is. For some people, it's gardening. I... Two minutes into gardening, I become a neurotic mess, just willing to pay anything to anyone to get me out of it. <laughs> some people love playing music. Some people love doing stuff with the body. Some people love uh, doing body work. Some people love um, uh, knitting. Some people love hiking, you know, we all have those uh, behaviors that uh, perhaps because at a very young age when we did it, we experienced a sense of joy and ease. But there there are behaviors in our life that um, it doesn't matter whether uh, other people approve or disapprove, they make us feel connected deeply, deeply connected with a spirit of being alive and with a sense of um, something that resonates really deeply within us. It doesn't have a performative element to it. And yet, even though sometimes we might have an idea what these are, there can be so much fear of walking away from jobs that are meaningless, from... Uh, situations in life that are meaningless and based on fear because the reason why we uh, started off down certain career paths or certain roles in the world was simply to get approval and we carry with us this fear that if we step away from the things that people approve of that we've searched for their acceptance via that if we step away from those things even though they're not deeply authentic, there's this fear that we'll die. We're literally bringing this childhood fear that, you know, if I continue to uh, uh, do this, my parents won't love me and I'll die. We can bring, it can feel, as some psychologists note, like annihilation. Stepping away from uh, so many of the roles we adopt in the world and actually turning towards that which really gives us sustaining deep meaning can feel like a a leap into the abyss. And certainly in our world where there's so few security nets and so few, um, uh, there's so little social support for taking risks, we can feel that 
just giving ourselves permission to to try something that's new, that's something that's really important and deep and meaningful, um, is is too much. Between the the psychological fear of turning away from these performative ways we've gotten love, and also the financial fears sometimes, even though some uh, a, a path for us can be so clear, it can take a long time to get uh, the strength to do it. I realized probably um, ten years before I fully transitioned from uh, what I was doing, which I really didn't like, to taking the risk financially and with my life to get all the training and to step into the unknown of teaching Buddhism and doing Buddhist counseling. It was, you know, it, it was, it's something that will never pay a fraction of being even the most mediocre uh, art director in the planet. But I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. It was so hollow and empty, and it meant nothing. And uh, I was surrounded by people who were getting excited and stressed out about something that, I mean, if they were painting purple balloons and green balloons and then uh, tying little Hershey's Kisses and saying this is the point of life and floating them into the sky, I don't know where that metaphor came from, but it, it meant nothing to me what everybody was getting worked up. I had no inner connection with it at all. I was walking around just looking at these people, like the Buddha said, running around with, like their heads were on fire. I couldn't figure out any of it. It meant nothing. And yet it took a long time. I, I wasn't uh, somebody who just leapt once I realized that I, my, the only life that made sense to me was to follow um, the spiritual path, even though it meant giving up so much of the esteem from working in a certain industry and so much of the financial support and all that, it still was the only thing I could do so that I had any feeling of meaning in my life, any sense of purpose. So, traditionally, there are a couple of ways in life where we can suddenly be shocked out of the trance of following in the footsteps of where everybody else tells us to go. And to see that so many of the roles we take on in life sometimes no longer have meaning. Some roles do. Being a mother can be a role that's very important, or being a caretaker, or being a someone who is a, an artist, or someone who... Uh, really cares about their work. It can be, roles can be deep and authentic, but sometimes the roles we've been thrust into or we've assumed really were just assumed because we thought it would look good or other people would approve or it would make us more secure, but it doesn't have any deep significance in the heart at all. So the first way that um, we can be shocked into a reprioritization of our lives is through brushes with death or actual death. Anything that reminds us of mortality uh, has a way of um, making so many of the dramas in our lives that 
get us bent out of shape, the concerns that we get all worked up, the dramas and families amongst friends, social circles, the, the stuff that we can get caught up in in uh, life suddenly gets tossed to the wayside. And when that happens, it's a really good sign when during a, a period of somebody we're close to is dying or has died or we've lost someone or we've had a brush with mortality and interests, certain huge chunks of interest no longer matter to us, that's a terrific sign, hey, this isn't that important to us. We've got to reprioritize. When we really come into um, sharp recognition of the truth of impermanence, the truth of marana sati, as the Buddha called it, the truth of our own lack of guarantees, when things fall by the wayside and they no longer matter to us, that's a clear indication. Now, in my experience, like us all, when uh, I'm, I'm sure that I've experienced deaths of both parents, close friends suddenly dying, um, there are certain things that still remain important. The day after my mother died and the day after my father died, I was teaching. That didn't mean I didn't love them. I didn't go to work the next day, but I went where they were paying me, but I did go to teach the very next day after both because the keeping New York Dharma Punks going was far more important to me than making money and showing up to a job, which had no meaning. Um, so the real important things do remain. We still, the people in our life who are important, the responsibilities that make sense, I still showed up for. But a lot of things I didn't show up for. I was in a terrible band. <laughs> <laughs> I quit immediately. <laughs> I quit. I was just doing it because uh, they were friends, and it was. It seemed like a fun thing to do, but it really was more aggravating than anything else. And the music was horrific. <laughs> and uh, so the next day, I literally just called and said, "No, I'm not showing up for this." So that's the first way. The second way is through uh, birth. And that's whenever it could be any time in life that we take on the responsibility for another life or caring, I should put it under birth and caring. Anytime we take on the obligation to care for someone or something and we elevate that uh, being's needs to um, uh, a level of significance and importance and consideration as our own. Um, that can really put into perspective, too, a lot of um, how important certain things are. It's a very, uh, that's another way. Uh, <coughs> the third way is what you've been doing this weekend. It's literally dropping life for a few days and walking away from it all and going into seclusion 
It's probably the least painful, especially for you mothers, right? So, uh, through going away, through dropping the rituals, the scheduled life, the busyness, the performative roles, the endeavors, the chases for approval, for money, for stepping away from it all, and through finding within and a way to be at peace without getting approval. Nobody here so far has been, we will be giving each other approval tomorrow, but uh, <laughs> nobody's been giving you uh, so far, uh, you know, the big round of applause for all the hard work you've been doing. You've not been making any money from doing this. You've not been um, getting anywhere near probably the amount of sensual pleasures <laughs> that you might get if you were just you know, out there buying the food you wanted at the places you like to eat in the world, uh, even though the food has been pretty good here. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, you've been finding that peace that finding that a, a place of happiness in the heart is available to you outside of all the roles and strategies that we pick up and we enact over time to, to try to find our place in the world. That there is another source of happiness. In fact, as a Buddhist, it's uh, in my nature to say that it's really the only lasting source of happiness other than deep meaningful connection with another person or other people that's not based on seeking approval at all costs. So any of these three things the brush with mortality, the taking on the responsibility for another life or the going on seclusion and retreat and finding how much true happiness is available to us outside in a new way than we ever suspected. Any of these three approaches can reprioritize our lives when we go back. We can not just use this time that we've been here for establishing a more... Uh, tools in our meditation. We can also use this time to reflect on life itself and what do we want to accomplish or do for meaning, true, deep, authentic meaning. This can be a time not just for uh, learning to be with the body and the breath, to acknowledge thoughts, to find out what's behind our fears, to do all the deep dredging up of material, but there's also an opportunity here as well to, when we step back at life, to look at where we are. What do we want to accomplish? What's meaningful for us? So here's... Three of the questions that I ask sometimes myself that I think have a great way of um, uh, 
establishing what's really deeply authentic for me and what's what's not. And they're very helpful in making decisions, not just about what I want to do with my life, but also on a day-to-day level, how to prioritize what I should be focusing on. The first question is based on um, a practice of Noah's father, um, who has the year-to-live practice. And the practice is basically... Asking ourselves, or even practicing as if we've been given a diagnosis that's fatal. It could be a three-month or a year. They call it a year to live, and that's when people do it in groups. But sometimes it's just worth wondering, what would I do? What would I want to do? What would be important to me if I only had six months to a year left to live? That's a very short time. So, reflecting on this, I'd be surprised if anybody said, well, I'd really like to get that project at work that's been bugging me, or I'd really like to, uh, you know, so many of the things that we might get us, find ourselves wrapped up in when we were coming here. When we asked this question, what would I attend to with only six months to live, wouldn't show up at all. So the question is, what would? And when we reflect on this, it's worth reflecting on it as if it's real. Try to be deeply authentic. What, given that shocking information, would we really want to do? Who would we want to build bridges with that had burnt? Who would we want to forgive? Who would we... Uh, who have we been chasing approval from that we would just finally say, you know, enough's enough. I'm not going back there again. Which dilemmas, which hunts would I put down? What would I change? Who would I make amends to? Who would I ask forgiveness from? When we do this work and we realize that we have a whole wealth of support within that we didn't know we had, we can often take advantage of this momentum and if we really realize, wow, there's someone that I've allowed myself to become distanced from distanced from just due to some awkwardness or a few misspoken words or disappointing actions and we can use the momentum of detaching and stepping away from our daily lives which tend to ingrain our behaviors and our thought processes and when we step away we can really see how something important and worth cherishing sometimes slips through the fingers of our hands, we can use this as an opportunity when we get back on Sunday to really make that difficult call or to pick up that guitar that we haven't picked up in a long time. Um, Another question is, what have I done in my life up to the last two years ago, let's say? I don't like it to be too recent, but 
from more than two years ago, what did I do that I feel the most proud of? If I could look back on everything from 2010, say, and earlier, what do I feel most proud of? See, if we can remember uh, things that we did that make us feel a sense of esteem, a sense of... Um, a sense of, of uh, having a purpose that we feel proud of, a sense of being somebody who we admire. And very often, the, the stuff that we get caught up in our daily lives has nothing to do with the stuff that two years from now we'll be proud of. There's a wonderful study um, that was done by uh, Jonathan Haidt, I believe, a clinical psychologist who writes a lot about uh, what brings about lasting happiness in life. And the study was they gave uh, graduate students, uh, they each gave, to each graduate student in the study, they gave $10. And to half of the students, they said, you have to give it away to somebody else. And to the other half, you have to spend the $10 on yourself. So six months later, they didn't tell them that this was going to happen, but six months later, I believe it was, or maybe it was a year later, they contacted each of the graduate students and they asked, what did you spend the $10 on? And it turned out that each of the graduate students that was told to spend it on somebody else could still remember and felt good about it. And virtually none of those who were told to spend it on themselves could reflect or remember what they had spent it on. And none of them felt any shift in esteem for themselves. So that's a hint. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, and this is one I'm good at because I give shower speeches all the time. Maybe you don't know what they are. Those are the speech to the world that I gave in the shower. None of you were there to hear it, but they're wonderful. (laughs) Very, very profound stuff is going on there. But if I had to give my speech, if I had a microphone and I had my five minutes, um, which would be a joke because I can't say anything unless I'm 15. (laughs) But... uh, if I had <coughs> if I had my five minutes, what would I really want people to know about what's important? And very few of us will say, well, try to make an, enough money that you can retire quickly. <laughs> try to cut a smooth path through the world where there's not too much trouble. <laughs> make it easy on yourself. Don't risk, don't take any challenges that are... So many of the thoughts that guide us in our day-to-day lives, if we said them out loud, we would sound like, oh my God. You know, in our day-to-day life, we're like, oh, I don't want to go to, I don't want to deal with this person. It's too messy. It's complicated. But would we say that in a speech to the world? Yeah, there's something you have to upset about. It. It's complicated. Just avoid it. <laughs> It's messy and it's difficult and, you know, it just makes me feel, you know, 
sort of, you know, like it's not going to go well. So don't do any of that stuff. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so, yeah, I guess to summarize uh, what I'd like to, uh, we're all going to be uh, <coughs> uh, tomorrow after some wonderful ceremonies we have planned, uh, uh, we're all going to be going back into life. And um, there's a lot of different ways you can bring this experience with you. You can bring the techniques, you can bring the friendships, and really these friendships are so important. They're the ways you will be able to enact all the risks you want to take in your life. Because part of the spiritual path is finding what's authentic, and then finding people who will support you in doing what you want to do. And the most important decision you can make is to be authentic. That means really be open and share about the true emotional content in your life, how you're really feeling. Don't put on a show for people. And if you have a real Sangha, they will be there for you. A real support community will not expect you to Simply be, you know, uh, performative. They will hear you and create a safe space for whatever you're experiencing. So, um, this is what we can bring back. Besides all those tools, we can bring back a ability to, or a, a way of reviewing life. At the end, Buddhism is not just a way to end stress, not just uh, a way to develop true ease and peace within as if that wasn't enough, but it's also a way that we can really establish meaning, deep, true meaning for our lives. Because we're, none of us are born with meaning. There is no meaning other than simply survive that the human species is programmed with. So we don't really have a meaning. There's nothing that uh, will provide us with it. We have to find it. We have to establish it. And your spiritual path is where you'll find yours. I thank you for listening. So before...